This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. I'm excited to be with you, and uh, I want to thank you. I got to go with Christian Student Fellowship at UMass Lowell on a spring break mission trip to LA this year, which was one of the highlights of my year, without a doubt. And so I want to thank you uh, for that opportunity, your support of collegiate ministry across the region. You are a member church, a leading church of the network of churches that really care about college students in our in our region, and so I want to thank you um, for that. I, uh, I've been married, this, this June I celebrated 20 years with Amy, and um, yeah, it goes like that. I mean, right now you're thinking, how does 20 years go like that? I'm not even 20 yet, some of you. It's okay, it does, just trust me. Um, and after 20 years of life and ministry, things can become routine, Maybe even ordinary is a word to use for it. Um, And that's one of the reasons I was really attracted to the theme you're exploring this summer, when the ordinary meets the extraordinary. Um, And as we'll see in Scripture this morning, there are real moments when ordinary life is infused with extraordinary happenings at the hand of God. Uh, Scripture records and explains these for us so that we may know who God is and worship the true God. And today we're going to look at Mark 4, 35 to 41, which is a story of Jesus calming a storm. Some of you may be familiar with this, but if you have a Bible, go ahead and, and turn with me to Mark 4, 35 to 31, 41, look at it on your phone, whatever, whatever you're most comfortable with. I'm going to read it for us and then... We're just going to walk through this event together. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took Jesus with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him. This is a short episode in the volume of scripture, but one that has so many facets and implications and one we we should not overlook. Mark in his gospel provides the most detail of this event, but Matthew and Luke also record it in their gospels. Matthew 8 and Luke 8, it's also recorded because it is such a striking event. While there are many implications and applications, and we're going to explore some of them this morning, there's one main truth that I want us to hold tightly to from this event, and that's, that's simply this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And with that, he is Lord over nature. So that's the main idea. Jesus is Lord. And with that, he is Lord over nature. Let's just hold tight to that as we go through this. And we need to remember that 
When I say Jesus is Lord, he is Lord over nature, that these disciples would have had a view of God, understanding who God is, but not necessarily making that connection with Jesus and God, right? In Genesis, God creates nature and destroys nature with a flood. In Exodus, he brings curses from nature on the nation of Egypt and rescues his people through a Red sea, the Red Sea on dry ground. He brings water from a rock in the desert. He provides manna and food for his people. This is the rescue by God of his people. And now in this, now in this event, the extraordinary rescuing God is in a boat with ordinary people. Right? So let's walk through this and in the process prayerfully grow in our understanding of faith, of fear, and this truth that Jesus is Lord. And, and the first, first idea is that storms happen, right? Verses 35, 36, 37, storms happen. Much has been written regarding the storms of life in this passage. And I do think it's appropriate to extrapolate what is happening in nature in this story to the trials of life, whether they're spiritual trials or relation relationship storms or economic storms or just whatever storms are in your life, given the larger context of Scripture, I think it's appropriate to make that extrapolation, but I don't want us to miss what is happening here. This is a natural, physical storm. The day it ended normally enough. It had been a full day. Verse 35, on that day, well, what is that day? Jesus spent the better part of that day teaching crowds and then teaching his disciples, the few. I think sometimes because of our familiarity with, with church and school, how many of you went to, went to public school or private school, somewhere like that? You get in the routine of being taught, right? You just go and you go through class, you move through it. It feels like you're part, you, just, you just get set on that conveyor belt and move all the way through, right? Just get all this information put on you. Because of our, our system, we can sometimes overlook how exhausting the work of preaching and biblical teaching, evangelism, and disciple-making can be on the type of day that Jesus was laboring here. He began by teaching a large crowd, perhaps on that same day, from a boat, right? If you back up um, all the way to chapter 4, verse 1, he got in a boat and sat in it on the sea and was, was teaching out. And then after that, he gathered his disciples and, and spoke to them and answering their questions, right? While teaching a large crowd and preaching can be tiring, I, I know that a real challenge comes in the follow-up of answering the questions from the few in whom he was really investing. My family's a family of five, and even in such a small group, there can be incessant questions. Right? There's, a, there's a lot of days that Amy and I go to bed at night, like, I have no more answers to anything. Right? We're just done. We're mentally tired. Right? Answering questions can be that way. It's not a work to be avoided. All of us should be involved in disciple-making, but those of you who have worked to maybe answer your own children, those of you who are leading small groups, those of you who are sharing the gospel with, with friends and patiently answering questions that it invariably raises, you know the human experience of making disciples. 
It's a work to be embraced, but it's a work that takes your time and energy. This was the day Jesus had just lived. He was tired and ready to move on and rest. And so he says, let's go across to the other side, right? He's like, let's leave this. Let's just, let's just move on. It's important to note that the disciples took him with them in the boat just as he was. They understood and recognized Jesus was tired. They recognized it was time. And they brought him along and took them with him just as he was. No prep, no resting, no cleaning, just get in the boat and go. And I say this to emphasize Jesus' humanity and the human experience of exhaustion. And in this, the disciples just taking him as he was, we also get a, a fledgling glimpse of the people of God in action. Right? The church caring for each other. It's early. They would not have thought of themselves as a church, but the empathy, the spiritual love, and the, the physical love of the church is being sown in this simple act of care. I think it's also interesting, he gets in the boat they go, that all these other boats went with him, right? Even in his leaving, Jesus was not alone. Let's go to the other side, and it's almost like the crowd says, yeah! They find whatever boat they can get in, and they just go with him. So other people, aside from his chosen disciples, got in boats and were following, right? Other boats were with him, verse 36, let me pause there just for a, for a minute and say, what level of dedication do you think it took for that crowd? I think for Jesus to say to his disciples, let's go to the other side, they're already bought in, they're already saying we're going to follow you. But what about this, the rest of this crowd that just gets in a boat and goes? Right? How dedicated were they? How dedicated are we? When we say we follow Jesus, how exactly do we mean, what exactly do we mean when we say that we follow? For this crowd, it was following him to be near him, to learn more from him, hopefully proudly to see some miracles that he would work. They were enjoying him, and they were enjoying his presence and wanted to be with him. Does that same ring true for us? Do we enjoy the presence of Jesus? Do we pursue Jesus and want to be with Jesus? Our experience is not one of physical closeness, but rather spiritual closeness. And that spiritual closeness is through obedience, even holiness. Psalm 93.5 says, Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The English Standard Version Study Bible has a simple statement from this verse. It says, It is a fixed point that only those who constantly pursue holiness will constantly enjoy God. It is a fixed point that only those who constantly pursue holiness will constantly enjoy God. So when we say we follow, I think it's one thing to jump in a boat, I think it's another thing to constantly pursue holiness, that we could have that spiritual enjoyment of Jesus. 
And our enjoyment of God, our following Jesus, is directly related to our obedience to Jesus, and therefore our experience of holiness lived. This is not to say that if you live perfectly, you will be close to God. Faith is absolutely required to bring us to God and keep us in relationship with God. And faith in Christ is the only way of true holiness. This is the beauty of the gospel. Because faith is absolutely required to bring us to God, to keep us in relationship with God. And it is the way of true holiness because by faith in Christ, our sin is taken by Jesus upon the cross and his perfect righteousness, his holiness is transferred to us. And Jesus' holiness is the holiness we need to enjoy God. And it's only ours by faith and only his to give, and he freely gives to all who have faith. So as we exercise the faith to enjoy God, that results in a life lived experiencing holiness. Results in holy living. So if today you find yourself rebelling against God, harboring some sin even in secret, living out a craving that is not Christ-honoring, you will also find that you're not enjoying God as you could, nor as you should. Unconfessed sin, unrepentant behavior is sickness to the soul. Listen to the outcome of that kind of life from Proverbs 5. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he's led astray, right? Iniquities ensnare him. He's held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline. He's led astray. How? By great folly. Death, the result of sin. Romans 6.23 makes it even more clear. The wages of sin is death. All our sinful labor is earning a bad payday. But life is available in Christ. I urge you to run to Jesus through faith that saves. Confess your sin and pursue him. Leave it all on shore and jump aboard and follow him. Right? We don't know all the motives of those who jumped in the boats to follow Jesus. But we do know this. They saw life in him and they wanted him more of him. Right? So friends, I would say... Follow that same heartbeat. Find life that is in Jesus and follow him. So they all get in the boats and they start out to the other side. And then this storm arises. And this is a big storm. The wording indicates hurricane force type winds. That's pretty windy, right? The boat was taking on water at a rate faster than the disciples could remedy. And we should remember that some of, the, some of the disciples were experienced fishermen. They grew up around and on the sea. If they had any hesitation before they ever got in the boat, they would have spoken up. If they were able to look at the weather and say, this is not a good time to be out on the ocean, they would have said something. But they jumped on board and went. Right? They were skilled. 
But the storm they encountered terrified them. I think it's one thing for me to get out on a boat in a storm. I mean, I don't know. The waves could be three feet and I could be screaming for my life. I don't know how it works, right? But these guys grew up on it. And they knew the end when they saw it. They knew they weren't supposed to be out there in it. And they were terrified. It was strong enough the waves were breaking over and into the boat. They knew what that meant. And for them, their mind went, we're dying. We're perishing. So if we just think about this day for a minute, it started out calmly, Jesus teaching. Then it was a good day. Jesus was spending time with them, explaining things to them. And now it's ending in terror. This is the reality of storms. They come up and do their thing with such little warning. They just happened. While this is a physical storm, I think it's appropriate to remember that the smallest word or tone in our communication in a relationship can result in a great storm, right? Without warning. That's because storms, they just, they happen. And they happen quickly. So storms happen. Second thing I think we need to remember is that faith is greater than fear, right? Trust Jesus in the storm. Faith is greater than fear. And that's the second half of this passage, verses 38 to 41. Earlier I said that the main point from this event is that Jesus is Lord and he is Lord over nature. If we step back and look at the larger context of this event in Scripture for a minute, we see that Jesus had just spent the time with his disciples explaining to them the kingdom of God. And it it starts small and grows large, like a mustard seed in the garden. The smallest of seeds growing into a biggest plant in the garden provides shade for the birds. Right? We also ex- see that he explained the kingdom of God as a man planting seed, went out, planted his field, kept living life, sleeping at night, and while he lived and slept, the seed grew. And then at the appropriate time, it went to fruit and was harvested. The kingdom grows and grows, it grows bigger. But like, like the seed, it will grow to a ripe plant, and at the proper time, it will at once be harvested without waiting, delay, or warning beyond the evidence of the ripe fruit. The kingdom of God will grow until a day when Jesus returns and claims his people. He's victorious and the king of the kingdom. This is what the disciples had just heard. This is what their minds are on as they're getting into that boat. They've been with Jesus long enough to see miracles of healing. They've heard his incredible teaching. And up to this point, there has been in them a consistently growing appreciation for Jesus and his ministry and even anticipation of the kingdom. And now, in the midst of the storm, they could care less about all that. Right? It's gone. It's all about survival. Storms really do serve as a reality check. This would be the first real test for the disciples. And if we look at Jesus' rebuke, they failed. (laughs) They failed. I mean, he rebuked the storm, he calmed the waves, and then he looks at them and is like, where's your faith? They failed not for absence of faith, but rather lack. Small quantity. 
Matthew and Luke use the words little faith. Luke says, where is your faith? Mark says, there's no faith, no strong faith here. As soon as they get to the other side, Jesus would show himself to be Lord by being Lord over the spiritual realm, casting out demons, and Lord over disease, and even Lord over death. In chapter 5, verses 21 and following. But for now, the disciples were still learning about Jesus, and they were desperate, and they were dying, and they were terrified. And all that to them... It just wasn't on their mind. Have you ever been scared? You can raise your hand if you've ever been scared. When you're in that, in that place, your mind's on what you're afraid of, right? That's what you're dealing with. That's where it is. Fear is a human emotion. It's, it's an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous or likely to cause pain or a threat. There's phobias. Anybody scared of spiders? Yep. I've got a couple people in my household. I get called to kill spiders all the time. It's not like I like the guys, but I get the called. Heights, that's mine. Put me anywhere high. It doesn't matter if I'm on a plane or on a step. I don't, I'm not big on heights. Being alone is another one. The dark. Um, people just, there's phobias. And there's fear as a response to a situation. A situation that evokes fear all of a sudden, right? The disciples found themselves in a situation. They probably weren't afraid of the sea or boats, but the storm got them, right? They believed the storm was dangerous. They believed their boat was going to sink, and therefore they believed they were going to die. So that is the reason for their fear. It was created by a belief founded on their circumstance. Right. Verse 38 is a key point in this story. Let me read it again. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's a, this verse is a key point because here we see the two foundations of belief in conflict. There's two foundations of belief in conflict. There is fear and there is faith. Right? The disciples had fear and they were afraid because of what they could observe. Their belief was solely scientific. It was just based on what they could observe. That belief defined their experience and, that, and it resulted in fear. I think it helps us to recognize a few things about fear biblically. The first instance of fear in the Bible is post-sin and post-fall, Genesis 3, 8 and 9. If you remember the story, God had made Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden, a place of perfect fellowship with him and the world, and a place of paradise. And he had given them one command to avoid, not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed that command. It was the first sin. They ate that fruit, and they, they and all of us since have knowledge of good and evil. And then in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we pick it up. They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God 
among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. The first sin in any sin results in our separation from God and all manner of things, including the first fear. We were not created with fear. Adam and Eve were afraid in the garden as a result of their sin. Stated with a future orientation, fear is the emotion we know it will not be present in heaven. Fear immobilizes. It removes us from the game. When we give in to fear, we quit. Practically speaking, when we fear something, we go around it or do not approach it. If we're too afraid to travel, we're confined in our ability and ways in which we can fulfill the Great Commission. That's just an example. This immobilization can be seen in a number of ways. Butterflies in your stomach. Anybody ever had that? Yeah. I'm showing my fears here, by the way. It's just me being vulnerable, real with you right now. Butterflies in your stomach. Anybody ever been nervous? Right. Weak knees. Anybody ever had the desire to just go somewhere and hide? A desire to run away? Right. Last summer, um, Amy and I took the kids on a vacation to southeast Utah. We got some pictures. You can show the first one, Laura Beth. So this is, um, this is outside of Moab, Utah. We enjoy the out- outdoors. In fact, we're leaving uh, this afternoon on vacation. We're headed out, out west again. Um, we love outdoor stuff. I'm a big National Parks fan, Bureau of Land Management. Um, if you're outdoorsy at all, you've probably heard of all the things you can do in Moab, mountain biking, hiking, rock climbing, rock clawing, buggy riding. The list goes on and on and on. It's just a fun place, trust me, if you like that kind of thing. If you don't, don't go there. All right. <laughs> So we went out with two goals. We're going to see the parks, and we're going to have fun, right? And so we're excited. And so the first day, we decided to drive to Canyonlands National Park the back way. And I checked the maps. Everything looked legit. Cell phones don't work out there. Everything looked legit. GPS wasn't working, but I had the maps. That's how I grew up, people. I had a map and a compass. We were good. And so we started out and um, got going, and very quickly we got into this area of the desert. The road's still well-defined, uh, but I realized that that line that we were following on the, on, the, on the map was not a paved road. I mean, the pavement end just like two miles out of, out of Moab, and this is what it turned into. It's like, oh, all right, this will be fun. And then, you can go to the next picture, very quickly we got into an area of the desert where it was all rubble and the road was rubble and I wasn't sure which way we should be going. It looked more like a trail, right? And I knew we needed to make a turn coming up because I could see the lines, you know, the lines on the map were intersecting. And so I was just creeping along, wasn't sure how I was going to see the turn we needed to make. Um, and I, I never saw it, this turn. Well, in further study of the map, I looked at it and said, no worries, this road looks to go where we need to go. It's just that it changed from the solid line to a dotted line. Yes. Should have read the key on the map. 
So it becomes this off-road experience, right? There's times when we're on the road and uh, wasn't sure we're on the road, wasn't sure we were on the right way. Everybody ever, ever been hiking and you're like, where's the next cairn? Where's the, road, the sign? You're not, I mean, it looks like somebody's walked here. Maybe it was a deer, maybe it was a person, I don't know. So we're driving along with that experience. You can go to the next, next picture. And finally, we come to this place, and there is a sign. This was about six miles into it, and I was like, oh, good, a sign. So Amy, Amy runs out and reads it, comes back in the car, and I said, what's on it? And she said, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and we've been married 20 years, remember, so I know that that means I don't need to ask any more questions. It probably just tells us a bunch of dangerous ways we're going to die. On the, on the path, right? Um, the scenery was incredible out there. You, I think there's a next picture, right? The scenery was incredible. We're kind of following the Colorado River and going along just the edge of it, and we're kind of creeping up in altitude as we go. We took a lot of pictures, but an hour or so into the, the ride, the feelings of uncertainty begin to settle in. I'm like, how long does this dotted, dashed line go? right? I mean, there's, there's no mile scale on my map, and I'm looking at the gas tank going, I think we're going to be okay. Maybe not. And so you can, you can see behind our smiles there a little bit of trepidation starting to, to creep in. You can go to the next picture. And a little more trepidation starts to creep in as we're starting to think, where are we going? How are we going to get there? At one point, Amy was out walking in front of the car trying to make the trail so we could maneuver past boulders along a canyon wall because I couldn't see, I couldn't see around the boulders to see what was coming, if we were going to fall off into the Colorado River or not. You know, I, w I just wasn't certain. And so I was at that, fr I was afraid. I was afraid. I won't lie. I was scared. I was like, I've brought my family out here on vacation to die. <laughs> and, uh, but... After that point where she picked the path, we reached a plateau, and I, I, could pick up, I could pick it up again. And I was like, oh, we're great. We've made it. And I pick it back up on the map, and I'm like, we're, we're approaching the intersection with the main road. <clears throat> and so we stay on that road, and I know it's going to lead us there. And as we approached what I thought on the map should be the intersection, I was dumbfounded. We were in the bottom of a valley looking all around, and then I saw the glimmer of a car straight up a cliff on the road that we needed to be on. Park ranger later told us it was over a half mile straight up, over 3,000 feet straight up. And there was an old shepherd's path that had been widened just enough for a car to ascend that 3,000 feet. Now remember, I'm scared of heights. There's no guardrails. There's no room. There's nothing to, to put it on. And so um, I hate it. I hate heights. I hate flying. I hate rooftops. I hate 3,000-foot cliffs trying to drive a car. I hate it all. And now looking up this 3,000 feet and seeing what we had to do, I wanted to hurl really bad. The girls looked at me with fear in their eye. My two daughters looked at me with fear in my eye. Amy She's the anchor of our family. She pointedly said, we're going up there. We're going up there, right? And Micah, 
looks at me and says, this is going to be awesome, right? <laughs> so we've got all these emotions going on, just the five of us, all these different reactions. I wanted to pass out and wake up in heaven. I was good with that. We started up. The switchbacks were incredibly tight. Every other turn as the driver, I was either shouldering the cliff wall or looking down, right? It was that tight. And about halfway up, the unthinkable happened. We met a Subaru Outback coming down. I was driving an expedition. I had no ideas about backing up. I was not going to back down it. Amy squeezed out of the car, walks up, finds enough room on a switchback so everybody can slide into the switchback and we can pass each other, right? Sliding up and the other car going around. As they went, went by, we rolled down our windows to, to kind of get the report on where we're going, where, where they had come from, where we had come from. And uh, I noticed that in their back seat was full of teenagers making great family memories in tears. They were screaming for their life, too. And um, the, the adults of us in the front seats looked at each other like, what did we do, you know? They made it to the bottom. We finally made it to the top. Praise Jesus, you can, you can turn. Next slide. So that road that you see straight out there is a mining road. That's not on the road we were on. This is the top of the cliff that we came up. If you can see where the, the river cuts in, we kind of came up, up that way. And then we have one last picture of us at the top <laughs> showing our, <laughs> our emotions. Of course, Mike is looking at it like, yes, we did it, right? We did make it to the top, but I'll say this, fear, if we let it have its day, it controls us. It owns us. It doesn't let go when you give into it. The most repeated command in the Bible is simply, do not fear. Right? 1 John 4.18 says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. The gospel which is love, defeats fear. Spiritually speaking, fear has to do with punishment. Adam and Eve were afraid because they were separated from God by sin. Death was not part of the picture at the beginning. Our fear has to do with death and separation. The gospel, friends, has defeated fear. It has overcome it. Because in the gospel, death and separation are defeated. Jesus takes our punishment upon himself and dies on the cross. He suffers for us on the cross. He endures punishment on the cross because, not because he did anything wrong, but because we did. Fear based on punishment and separation from God in the gospel, there is no more punishment, but rather perfect love, right, that drives out fear. You need not ultimately fear because in Christ, God has come. In Christ, God has loved. God has redeemed. And in Christ, God has saved. 
So the end of fear is found in the gospel. And because of the secure love we know in Jesus, we can face our fear. And this brings us to the second foundation we see in verse 38, and that's faith. Jesus rested by faith. He was asleep in this terrifying storm. Yes, I'm sure he was exhausted. I'm sure he was tired. But I am also sure that he knew where his death lay, and it was not in the Sea of Galilee. He knew it would be the cross. And he trusted his Father who would hold him to that day. Right? He could sleep because he was secure in his faith. In reading a commentary on this passage, um, the president of Southeastern Seminary, Danny Aiken, gave a quote from Lottie Moon, who was a missionary to China at least 100 years ago at this point. And she said, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal till my work is done. Right? I have a firm conviction that I am immortal till my work is done. What faith to trust in the sovereignty of God, knowing that she would finish the race she was set out for. Right? We were not created to experience fear, and given the commands, we should not remain in fear. In the Old Testament, the people of God faced challenge after challenge and were encouraged to overcome their fear with faith. In interchange after interchange, when the people were afraid, God delivered them. God showed them his power. God showed them the necessity of faith. Right? Earlier I mentioned the Red Sea. God called his people to have faith and cross the sea on dry ground. You may remember the story of David and Goliath. David went at the giant with faith, right? And now here on this boat in the Sea of Galilee, what would God do to save his people? How would he handle this sea? He would handle it the same exact way he did for all his people, all Israel, when, when faced with challenging situations. He called them to have faith. Faith is greater than fear. Some would say faith is the antidote for fear. Others would say, don't be afraid, just have faith. All of this to say, fill your mind with truth and faith so that in the day of fear you will not succumb to fear. It's important to know Jesus is the center of this faith. The disciples got it right. They went to Jesus when they were afraid. And he answered... They did go to him, he did answer, but their faith itself was weak. It was fledgling. It was not fully formed. It was almost as if Jesus was saying, you didn't really need to wake me up and have me do this. If your faith had been there, why do you still have no faith? Why do you not understand where we're going and what we're doing? This was a growing moment for the disciples, one where they would learn more about faith, and they would exercise faith to make their own faith grow, and an event where they realized the immensity of Jesus, the Son of God, not the Jesus of their own making. Right? So when I say Jesus is at the center of this faith, I mean the Jesus of the Bible is at the center of this faith, not a, not a Jesus of our making. In commanding nature, Jesus shows his power. He is 
Lord. It is one thing to heal a person. Even in our day, there are people who claim to work miracles of healing, right? It is another thing to speak to a hurricane and it stops. That is altogether outside of our understanding of humanity. Because Jesus just showed his true colors yet again. Fully human, asleep in the stern, fully God rebuking the waves and the wind. Right? You can almost see the disciples exasperated terror-filled, waking Jesus up and saying, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And with more attention and love than they could ever dream of, Jesus answers their plea for help. And it's a great calm. This is the Jesus of Scripture who commands the storm and the sea and still calls us, his followers, to faith. This was an astounding miracle that left the disciples filled with wonder and even more so now greatly afraid. It's as if they went from the terror of death to realizing, whoa, who's in the boat, right? Who is this man? Who is this? I've never gone from terror to terror, but, but you almost get the sense here, they're like, uh, that storm was nothing. This guy's got power. Who is this? The Lord who creates, sustains, gives, and takes away. At this moment, this clarifying miracle of controlling nature, the disciples have such a reaction that, that they're filled with fear. They marvel. Matthew records, they said, what kind of man is this? And in Luke, they were afraid and they marveled and asked, who then is this? And this is the question we must all settle. Who then is this man who would calm the storm? It's Jesus the Lord. That question of identity we must all settle. And that man, that human Son of God, who is fully man and fully divine, must be at the center of our faith. For he is the truth. Right. The disciples were learning the truth about Jesus. And as we grow with Jesus, we'll always encounter surprising things because he is fully man and fully God. We're always going to grow with him. We're always going to expand our knowledge of him. Because he cannot be contained. He cannot. Just when the disciples thought they had him, he did something so magnificent that they couldn't even, they didn't even have a category for him. They were just beginning to sense his deity. Even though they were seeing it on full display. Should they have been surprised? No. They should have known their scripture. Listen to Psalm 107, 23 to 31. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. 
For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, then they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in the trouble, and he delivered them from the distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Had they remembered their scripture, they would know Jesus is Lord. Right? Jesus commanded the storm both ways, according to Psalm 107. He caused it, and he stopped it. He slept because he was in control. He is far more powerful than we think or imagine. Now, I don't want us to walk away from our time in the Word this morning with the idea that we can just walk into some situation and then claim Jesus and be okay and get what we want. It's important to remember that miracles, the very point of a miracle is that God is intervening in human history in a supernatural way that is non-normative and non-recurring. Right? That's from a book, Inductive Bible Study, by Richard Fuhrer and Andreas Kostenberger. They make it very clear, this is not normal. Don't go sailing into a hurricane, right? And then expect it to get calm. This is a not normal, non-recurring event. When you are afraid, remember the Lord. If you find yourself facing death or something terrible, Faith is not in the belief that Jesus will heal you, he can, or make it better for you, he can, but in the belief that he has made it better by the cross and will carry us through to his very presence in eternity, even if it's through death, because he overcomes death that we might live beyond it, right? This series, When the Extraordinary Meets the Ordinary, is a constant reminder that Jesus is not an extraordinary man only. He is the extraordinary God. Right. His grace to the disciples was great. Their faith was deficient. It was so small, yet he gave them life and caused it to grow. Right. Whatever storm you're in this morning, look to Jesus. His grace is there. And what about all those in the other boats? How merciful is our God. How his grace extends. And he does this work and gives us the same call. Have faith. Sometimes we want to see extraordinary things happen in and with our lives. But a lot of times we want to define what that is. The message of Scripture is that God can do the extraordinary with the ordinary. He is God, not us. So let our striving not be for the extraordinary, but let our striving be for the ordinary obedience of faith. For in that, the extraordinary God truly works. Let's pray.
Lord, you are extraordinary. The winds and the seas, they obey you. You create and calm storms. You hear and answer us when we call. You are the true God, and you give us life through your Son, Jesus, that we might forever live, that you might forever be praised. All glory is yours, God. Lord, for the storms we may face ahead, help us to have Jesus at the center of our faith, that we might faithfully live to you and for you, to your praise, in Jesus' name, amen.